the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Monday, April 3rd, 2023. Hope you all had a great weekend. I did a few things on my mind today. First, the efforts to silence conservatives seem to know few bounds, be they legal or extra legal, be they the use of law as politics by other means and umbrages within the law like gag orders on Republican defendants. Or be they in the form of actual censorship or what I call a priori moral prior restraint? I've spoken of this before. It's a mouthful. What do I mean by a priori moral prior restraint? Well, first, we must understand that any moral claim from the left should be subject to the strictest of scrutiny, as it will usually fall apart once it meets the shoals of reason or singular standards, double standards and hypocrisy or what philosophers refer to as relativism, pretty much occupy the entire field of left-wing morality these days. Examples pervade, but if you want just one, the NBA and Nike will lecture America on her slavery that ended 158 years ago, but happily promote and take billions of dollars in from China to pay for those microphones to lecture America. China, a country that has never ended slavery and that practices it as we speak, and in partnership with the NBA and Nike when it comes to places like the Shenzhen province. The left will condemn, rightfully, sexism, but it will defend and cover it up if committed by someone named Clinton, even including serious allegations of rape. They will call it insurrectionist to question the results of an election, but only if the question comes from Republicans, while they will strut about their claims of fraud when a Republican is victorious. They will tell us political violence is a threat to America, but will bury the violence of those who preach and associate with liberal or left-wing causes or the Democratic Party. They will tell us Black Lives Matter, but they will build that movement on an edifice of police misconduct that takes 18 lives, namely unarmed black men, and deep six any concern about the over 7,000 black men killed by other black men because those lives ruin the narrative of the 18. Violence is awful when nobody is killed by a protester, but people will do what people will do when a three-month riot that takes the lives of dozens is concocted in the name of historical racial grievances on behalf of a self-proclaimed Marxist organization. COVID will be the most serious public health threat that requires isolation, shutdowns, and stay-in-place, shelter-in-place orders, and the crackdown on any group activity unless the more serious threat of racism is used in order to justify mass protests and riots in the streets. Restaurants and travel and beauty parlor operations must all cease unless it is a Democrat who wants to go to the restaurant, travel, or have her hair done. As for a priori restraint based on a claim to morality, the latest is something that has to be taken seriously, and I admit 
too many of us haven't taken it seriously enough. I've spoken on this before, but it's back again in full force. Full force. It's been around a few years, and I thought the nonsense of it would collapse of its own weight or internal contradiction. I was wrong about that. A priori means ahead of knowledge or ahead of time. Prior restraint is the censorship or refusal to allow the publication or speech of something or someone before it is spoken or printed, and it comes to us today in the case of George Soros. I've known of Soros's politics for decades, since the early 1990s anyway, and I've condemned and criticized his policies and spending on them for just about as long. It never once dawned on me until about eight to ten years ago that he was actually Jewish, and it still befuddles me as to why it matters. But this is the new leverage of censorship. Adam Schiff this Sunday, this past Sunday, went after Republicans for invoking Soros's name and said it was an anti-Semitic dog whistle. Columnists here and nationally are doing it as well. All the liberal blue checks are doing are doing it almost as if it were a memo. Mind you, when Republicans mention Soros's name, they never mention his religion or upbringing, just as Soros does not. More on that momentarily. Just by dint of George Soros having been born to parents who were Jewish, of a sudden it is anti-Semitic to criticize him for things that have nothing to do with his race or religion. If you can stop someone from criticizing one of the wealthiest and biggest left-wing donors in the country, I guess so much the better, and any port in a harbor will do. And, of course, all other forms of serious and real anti-Semitism, from rising hate crimes against Jews to apologists for those who identify Israel for extermination, oh, well, that will get ignored, if not memory hold or given a free pass. This is an incredible shield of or from criticism that is being sought over a man who has donated hundreds of millions of dollars to left-wing causes, including anti-Israel causes. And it is part and parcel or in league with the racial and sexual criticism shield the left uses all the time and has used for years. If you criticize or question a Katanji Brown Jackson for her opinions and statements, you're considered a racial or sexist bully. If you criticize or question a Clarence Thomas or an Amy Coney Barrett, you are not. If you question Hillary Clinton's bona fides, honesty, or ethics, you are anti-woman. If you question Carrie Lakes or now even Kirsten Sinema's, you are not. If you question AOC or Ilan Omar, you are sexist and racist. If you question Marsha Blackburn or Ayan Hirsi Ali, you are not. Which brings me back to criticizing George George Soros as a synecdoche for anti-Semitism. George Soros, who may have been born to Jewish parents, but does not, does not identify as a Jewish person in any verbal, outward, or other sense, has been involved in no Jewish causes so far as I know of, makes me think the only part of his Jewish heritage that matters is that it can be weaponized and used against any criticism of him or the candidates he donates to, all of whom are on the left and the far left at that. He is being given the same racial criticism shield or a priori criticism veto for nothing he has done or said or is, but simply by dint of his birth with no allowance for any criticism or examination of him on the merits of what he actually does or says. It is the same shield or a a priori veto Ilan Omar and AOC make use of to a fairly well. 
You can't criticize me for what I do. I'm a racial minority after all. See how well that works for Clarence Thomas or Larry Elder or Candace Owens or Ayan Hirsi Ali. It doesn't. And they don't hide behind their race or ethnicity in order to shield themselves from criticism either. For what it's worth, note well, again, the, this only runs in one very weird direction ideologically. Zero columnists said it was off limits to criticize Sheldon Adelson, who did prominently affiliate with his Jewish faith and background. But you see, he was supportive of Republicans, so he took likely more criticism than George Soros ever did when he was alive. Dennis Prager, another strong identifier with the Jewish faith and Jewish causes, has never sought the racial, ethnic, religious shield, but he is lied about and condemned daily and routinely, and no one ever dares call that anti as for me, I happen to think it racist in and of itself to assume people cannot handle the heat of dialogue and debate because of their background. That, to me, was always a badge of the bigotry of low expectations. You can't criticize fanatical or political Islam because Muslims will riot. You can't grade a racial minority the same way you grade a non-minority person for they will melt. You can't treat women and men equally in the arena of debate and discussion, for that will make the woman feel less than, or she might say, you're mansplaining, or it will be dismissed as othering. Meanwhile, on this newfound concern for anti-Semitism from the left, I'm glad they think it's a negative thing, I suppose, now do anti-Jewish hate crimes. I bet you didn't know, according to the Department of Justice, there are more anti-Jewish hate crimes in America than anti-Muslim or even anti-Hispanic or Latino. Or do the most insidious of anti-Semitic claims, which is that Israel, not China, not Iran, not Cuba, not the Sudan, not Syria, not North Korea, is subject to sanction upon sanction and calls for its elimination as a state entity, the only country that is. Note that one well. Isn't it odd that the only, the single solitary, only country in the world that is okay to openly speak about eliminating is the Jewish state? And isn't it interesting those claims come from the left and from countries the Democrats think we should ally with and give billions of dollars to? It's also the only country in the entire Middle East which gives equal civil and political rights to Jews as well as non-Jews. I know. I know there's this weird thing out there that the word anti-Semitism is not to be used when it comes to speaking about Israeli claims of prejudice and double standards because Arabs are Semites as well, and it's nonsense. The very term anti-Semitism was coined, discovered, invented in 1879 by one Wilhelm Marr, a German anti-Jewish journalist, to apply exclusively to Jews and as a more scientific euphemism from the then-current word Judenhaus, which meant Jew hatred. It was never used to apply to the Arabs or against the Arabs. And when you listen to anti-Israel rioters in Israel, isn't it interesting that the most common phrases in those riots is itba al-Yahud, which means slaughter the Jew. And isn't it interesting when the PLO tried to overthrow the Jordanian monarchy or the Lebanese Christian government, zero defenders of the PLO or the PLO itself claimed the retaliations or Verbal condemnations were anti-Semitic. That's just a small part of it. So the entire phrase and use of anti-Semitism as we know it today is little or nothing more than a cudgel and blanket to silence non-leftists and to wrap leftism in a breach-proof protectorate against critique, criticism, and debate. Quite honestly, it is all its own form of anti-Semitic prejudice when you think about it. To use one's ethnic 
background and bring it up every time something is said about a person, in this case George Soros, who never affiliated and doesn't affiliate with the background or ethnicity or culture in the first place, in fact, whose family has itself tried to conceal its own Jewish roots, isn't that really the bigotry? He doesn't bring up his Judaism. Other people do. That's usually what you call racism. So end of day, do note what is going on here. It's not anti-Semitic to criticize George Soros for doing what George Soros does any more than it's anti-Semitic to criticize Ivanka or Jared Kushner for what they may or may not do. But if you continually remind the world of their heritage, which is not something they do, yeah, you yourself are in bigoted, bigoted waters and territory. And if you think someone, because of their heritage, deserves different treatment than the rest of the population, yeah, you yourself are in bigoted waters and prejudicial territory. And yeah, when you do all of this only on behalf of one political ideo- ideology, you yourself are a hypocrite whose moral plaint cannot be taken seriously because, it's, because it is simply an arbitrary or relativistic moral point. And yeah, if you ignore the larger problems with the ethnicities or religions you pretend to care about for your ideological purposes, you are little more than a prejudiced opportunist. So can we please be done with this and just treat all people the same when they do ill or when they do good? That once upon a time was the goal of non-bigotry as well as equality. But we live in a time where reason has been replaced by propaganda and ideological rigidity has replaced liberalism, hasn't it? It's just such a disgusting thing and makes for more terrible times when this is all done for political expedience. This, too, is not just how you lose a country, but all ethical standards as well. I'm not sure when it comes to America, which is worse. After all, the whole point of America, we keep being told, was to establish ethical standards. You lose one, you lose the other, and we're pretty fast on our way there. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Happy to take your calls on anything uh, you're thinking, particularly with regard to uh, Donald Trump's arrangement, uh, excuse me, <laughs> arraignment uh, scheduled for tomorrow. Um, it looks like there will be no cuffs. Interesting question as to whether there will be cameras. Looks like um, Donald Trump's defense team is, at least according to Reuters right now, uh, arguing uh, to not have cameras in the courtroom. There can be any number of legitimate reasons for that, the debate of cameras in the courtroom is a fascinating one in and of itself, uh, all the more so here, which raises this column. I, you know, I'm looking for interesting things that we haven't all read or thought or said about this arraignment. And I think Ilya Shapiro over at City Journal had something pretty interesting on this I'll share with you. Um, suspend for a moment where you stand on this. Um, the big losers here, he says, are the rule of law and the American people. Now, if you think Trump is a bad man who did bad things and doesn't deserve to be anywhere near public office, you're worse off because he's now a better bet to get that to get the presidential nomination and any further indictments, either from a federal investigation of improperly handled classified documents or the one in Georgia over election fraud, which 
until a week ago people were saying were the really serious ones now seem politicized and less likely to end up with any real accountability. The weakness, in other words, of Alvin Bragg's case undermines all other potential prosecutions. That is to say, if you are someone who wanted to see Donald Trump prosecuted, that's why I say suspend your beliefs on the wisdom or the correctness of any of this. But on the other hand, if you are a Trump supporter, there's a question that does beg itself as to whether it makes it more likely that Trump returns to the White House, even if it improves his chances of being on the ballot in 2024. The only mandate that Joe Biden won in 2020 was not being Donald Trump. And Biden's overreach since fulfilling that mandate, as well as his age, makes him a singularly vulnerable incumbent. And perhaps the only Republican who Biden could beat would be someone fighting off multiple legal challenges with criminal penalties. And if you want to see American politics return to a normal state, well, you're also worse off. There may not even be a final verdict here. Trump's lawyers will move appropriately to dismiss the indictment on multiple grounds, which I hope they prevail upon. First, it's obviously a stretch to find that an improper recording of a hush money payment as a legal expense is criminal. Second, this kind of ticky-tack misdemeanor is barred by the statute of limitations. Third, and I think this is going to be the big one, frankly, that Trump's poor or bad accounting, even if intentional, becomes a felony because the purpose of the hush money was theoretically to violate a federal campaign finance law is a fanciful notion. And the idea that it was with the intent to defraud anyone, which is an element of the charge, you have to show that there was an intent to defraud. Who is the defrauded party? This, I think, will be a critical issue a lot of people are overlooking or aren't looking into seriously enough. There's just no reason, no legitimate or legal reason, for such newly discovered evidence to revive a cold case years later when we are trying to strut our moral superiority on the world stage. I was talking earlier with Carol Platt-Lebow, who was making the point, you know, how do we cite our credibility, our moral, our legal, our constitutional superiority when we're acting like the kind of country we used to condemn for doing the kinds of things that used to make it Condemnable. There's this whole discussion right now over the news story of um, of the Wall Street Journal reporter taken hostage in Russia, Evan Gershkovich, to silence him. Well, what kind of lecturing can we give to Vladimir Putin when an entire political party here is trying to silence its opposition using the legal courts? Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. John Dombrowski is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His website, grandcanyonplanning.com. Also the host of his own radio show, heard here every Saturday morning, bright and early at 7 a.m., The Word on Wealth. How are you, John? I hope you had a good weekend. I did. Thank you, Seth. Nice to have you. Nice to have you with us today. Um, 
Before I ask you this interesting hypothetical uh, that I wanted to run by you for the audience, I just wanted to point something out. Last week when we were talking, if you go to the Wall Street Journal homepage, uh, their website, they, they I guess they've started doing news tickers across the top with, with, with highlights of about eight stories related to the story of the day. And last week it was about bank failures. Right. Now it's all about the Trump indictment. I guess the bank failure stuff is going to be far in the rearview mirror like classified documents, right? This is, this is yeah. all to be yeah. forgotten and moved on from? Right, because that's not important. Not important anymore. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, we, we do a lot of... Um, we do a, a, a lot of talking in the abstract here, and I thought it would be fun uh, for people in this time of, you know, question and sometimes volatility and sometimes turbulence, depending on which news channel or news station you watch at night, <clears throat> to postulate to you an average, uh, an average um, uh, American or Arizonan. Let's say they're, they're making, uh, you know, something in the, uh, in the, in the six-figure range uh, with, a, with, a, with a small family. I don't know. Maybe they make 150000 somewhere around there. Let's say they're in their 50s. But let's say they right. also have, you know, uh, an inheritance, a small inheritance or some kind of windfall or some kind of sell-off or some kind of appreciation that gets them in the neighborhood of – I don't know, twenty five, fifty thousand bucks, and they right. come to you. What is the th- what? What wheels start turning in your head? What do you think about someone like this in this position? Well, if it was an inheritance, then that could be a, certainly a benefit to that individual coming, you know, up with a lump sum of money like yeah. that that they didn't have, just not, you know, in a short period ago. But uh, in a case like that, I would certainly ask a couple of questions. Number one, um, what type of debt do you currently hold? You know, because yeah, uh, yeah. if you've got someone with a very high credit card debt or some type of a revolving credit debt that's at a very high interest rate, you know, would the first uh, thing to do maybe be to pay down some of that debt? Interesting. Okay. Uh, in a situation like that, but if it's just money that someone's accumulated over time and they've now got some type of a nest egg, uh, I think the first couple of things that we would look at from a you know a perspective of my business would be is. What is the need for the money? What What is the goal for that money? Okay. Um, you know, longer term. So it's a kind of uh, maybe a, a simple thing to think about, but it's it's something called a needs analysis. Okay. We probably all have heard about it. You know, there's four steps to that, understanding the long and short term goal of whatever that money would be. Uh, what type of expectations do you have from that money if you were to do some type of an investment with it? And then... Um, what are you currently doing with it, right? So if I've got that money just sitting in the bank earning nothing, well, then maybe I might want to consider somehow putting that money to work for me. Uh, And then um, look at what you would do as far as that appropriate solution and the balance that you'd want for that. Because I think, Seth, sometimes people have unrealized or unrealistic, I should say, expectations when they hear things about the market, whether it's positive or negative. Uh, And those are short-term you know, you know, solutions or, or examples of what happens in the market day to day. We need to look at the longer picture and really develop a strategy for somebody. If it's a younger person that has time on their side, to where they could uh, take a, a little bit more risk with that money and ultimately benefit in the long term versus someone who maybe he's retired right now yeah. and they're they're afraid of the market and really you know what they need that money to live on and generate some kind of an income. So everybody's different, but. I would just say this if you've come into that kind of a, a scenario where you've got a lump sum of money that's just sitting there, you're unsure what to do with it, 
Well, we certainly can examine some options for you to see what would be best for you. Not everyone's the same. Yeah, yeah. And and the interesting thing, and I didn't think of this answer. It makes all the sense in the world. I didn't think of it, but this notion that whatever debt you're carrying could be much more expensive to you than immediately thinking that you can continue to carry it while investing. You you really do want to look at that equation. Yeah, I mean, if you've got a loan that's two and a half, three percent, that's a different story than yeah. something that's at eighteen yeah. percent. Yeah, yeah, right. That's smart. Yeah. Thanks, John. Yeah. That's helpful. Thank you, sir. You bet. And they could go to our website at GrandCanyonPlanning.com to get a hold of me. Securities and advisory services over through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finran Sipkin, an investment advisor. Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Talk to you Thank soon, you, John. Seth. Thank you. I am okay. Seth at 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. This is a story that's probably not going to get enough coverage outside of conservative circles. But just when you thought there was no one left to lie to from this administration. Let me read to you from the Wall Street Journal. When, remember when a Chinese spy balloon flew across the entire continental United States? Wasn't that long ago. The administration is hoping the public has forgotten about that fiasco from two months ago. So it's all the more important to note that the Biden narrative about this spectacle is losing altitude as more details emerge. On Monday, press reports said that the Chinese spy balloon that entered the U.S. airspace near Alaska on January 28th was able to collect intelligence on American military sites. Is that the headline you remember? The balloon was spotted flying in Montana, home to intercontinental ballistic missile fields. U.S. officials told NBC News that the Beijing blimp could fly in figure-eight pirouettes lingering over areas of interest. The balloon could pick up electronic signals and transmit information to Beijing in real time. Is that how you remember the Biden administration describing it? This is a sidewinder missile through the White House Pentagon talking points at the time, namely that the balloon didn't present a big intelligence risk and couldn't suck up better information than Chinese satellites in low Earth orbit. Americans were supposed to believe that China would go through the trouble of building a global balloon flotilla spotted all over Europe and Asia for no spying benefit whatsoever. That's what we were led to believe. The administration repeated this claim all over town. The Pentagon told reporters on February 2nd, quote, that whatever the surveillance payload is on this balloon, it does not create significant value added over satellites, close quote. After President Biden ordered the balloon shot down off the U.S. East Coast, defense officials said on February 4th that the action, quote, further neutralized any intelligence value it could have produced, preventing it from returning to Beijing, close quote. Again, now we're learning it didn't need to return. It was beaming the information to it in real time. The balloon carried a payload the size of a regional jet, and the news leak suggested it was capable of self-destruction on command. In other words, America may have been relying on the judgment of the Chinese Communist Party to avoid damage or loss of life on the ground while the balloon was flying over the United States. Perhaps Mark Milley was getting that directly from his Chinese counterparts, as he so is wont to do. The Biden team also played up their decision to wait to shoot down the balloon. It wasn't American hesitation or weakness, they implied, but a chess move to study the Chinese balloon program. 
the U.S. military, quote, took all the necessary steps, close quote, to protect against the balloon's collection of sensitive information. And the balloon's trip was of intelligence value to the U.S., we were told by the Pentagon on February 4th. President Biden said on February 16th, quote, we tracked it closely, we analyzed its capabilities, and we learned more about how it operates. And because we knew its path, we were able to protect sensitive sites against collection, he said. This is the same rhetorical jiu-jitsu that tried to spin the chaotic U.S. surrender in Afghanistan as a triumph of logistics. Remarkable success was, I believe, the term of art the president used. Recall the administration went public about the balloon only after civilians in Montana had spotted it. Our guess is that it kept quiet until then because it wanted to keep Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's Anthony Blinken's planned trip to China on course. Once the balloon story broke, Mr. Blinken canceled the trip, and U.S.-China relations have worsened since. The latest stories make Mr. Biden's decision to wait to shoot down the balloon look worse, and Congress has an obligation to figure out what American assets may have been compromised by that flyover. Lawmakers have been trying to ferret out a timeline of decisions. To little illumination, the Biden team has also gone dark on three unidentified objects the U.S. military shot down shortly after the balloon, perhaps because they overreacted and shot down hobby aircraft. The Biden administration may insist that the intelligence Beijing gleaned wasn't that valuable, but voters can fairly conclude the president isn't leveling with them. This man has become a pattern with Team Biden. This has become a pattern with Team Biden, and it's undermining the bipartisan support the president needs to conduct foreign policy in an increasingly dangerous world. But so, too, is the rest of the Democratic Party with their strutting about the Donald Trump indictment and soon coming arraignment, which is scheduled for tomorrow. How are we to lecture these other countries, as Carol, as I was saying, Carol was telling me earlier? I think it's an important point to consider. How do we stand up to Vladimir Putin for arresting, detaining and arresting a Wall Street Journal reporter because they deem him to be oppositional to the Putin regime in Russia? How how do we lecture him about that? When we're arresting the leading member of the opposite party of Joe Biden here in America on the kinds of charges that have never, let me repeat, never been used against anyone. Unprecedented has a lot of use in what's going on in Manhattan right now. A lot of use. This kind of crime never charged this way. This kind of crime never ramped up into a log rolling of multiple additional indictments. And then the question becomes one of accountability, too, doesn't it? Will there be one Democrat who stands up and says this is a bridge too far? Will there be one Democrat who stands up and says we don't do Putin ethics here? Will there be one? One elected Democrat. You know, during the um, social media blackout on Hunter Biden, there was one Democrat out of uh, California, a member of the House of Representatives, Rokana. He was the only one who 
said this isn't right. There was only one. It says something about that party, doesn't it? It says something about them that they they just play by a by a different understanding. They play by a different understanding of what fair political play is. And fair political play doesn't even begin to address an unprecedented kind of indictment, does it? Fair political play is just by the rules we all assumed applied and abided. Now breach those rules. Now breach those rules with an 18-wheeler Mack truck. Is one, is any, are any going to say anything? All the while blathering and blathering on and on about how we've lost bipartisanship and we too often think of our political opponents as enemies. Go read Joe Biden's eulogy of John McCain when he was here in Phoenix. You could shred it all and it would be worth more. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. How do you think the Biden administration is handling the economy, never mind anything else? With the excuses over bank failings and stock market volatility and a possible recession on the rise, what if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? A portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off or compound it or whatever you choose, and there is no loss of principle. If you need your money back at any time, a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises, where your interest is compounded daily, you're paid monthly, and there are no fees. A secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. Talk to my friends at Y-Refi. I know them well. They're local. You can visit with them, totally trustworthy and honest, and you won't get a sales pitch. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can earn up to a ten point two five percent rate of return. That's right, a ten and a quarter percent fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at eight 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 Y Refi thirty four. That's eight 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 Y Refi thirty four. I want to. Um, I want to um, spend some time on um, the notion of the, the deep state and the deep bureaucracy and what its wages are, what it causes, the causticity, C-A-U-S, the caustic nature of it, um, and I was thankful to my friend Steve, close listener to the show, who likes so much the work of Hannah Arendt, a political philosopher, particularly popular in the 50s and 60s and 70s in America. She had a really interesting essay in the New York Review of Books in 1969 connecting the over-bureaucratization of society to political violence. And she writes, the greater the bureaucratization of public life, the greater will be the attraction of violence. In a fully developed bureaucracy, 
There is nobody left with whom one can argue, to whom one could present grievances, on whom the pressures of power could be exerted. Bureaucracy is the form of government in which everybody is deprived of political freedom, of the power to act. For the rule by nobody is not no rule, and where all are equally powerless, we have a tyranny without a tyrant. Think about that in the context to that line of C.S. Lewis's in the opening of the screw tape letters that Ronald Reagan liked to use so much about our greatest dangers are not the people coming from the people we know of, but those quiet men in well-led offices whose names we never know. Think about those things as we think about the increasing bureaucratic state and how it doesn't mean government by nobody. It means government with no accountability because we don't know who to appeal to. I'm Seth. We will be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 